Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Luke seven twenty three, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Wow. Got your attention. All eyes are on me. It worked. Uh, as we come to God's Word, we, we know that God's Word sanctifies us. We're sanctified by Him, by the Holy Spirit. So before we uh, enter into uh, studying His Word, would you join me in time of prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all the ways that you have moved in our lives. We worship you and, and proclaim that you are the king of our lives, of the universe, the creator. And Lord, we humbly ask that you would now move through our time in your word, that you would make us more like you through the power of your spirit. Lord, would you let us walk away here as men and women changed to become more like you. Lord, would you use my words uh, to impact all of us. And Jesus, for those who aren't with us, uh, the men on the men's retreat, we ask that you would uh, bless the remaining hours there. Let them uh, build relationships with one another, with you, come back refreshed, as well as their families as they enter into this next week. Uh, and the others who aren't able to be with us for whatever reason, Lord, would you comfort the challenged and would you challenge those who may be too comfortable? And Jesus, we present ourselves to you. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Has it gone how you thought it would? Have the last couple years turned out how you expected? Maybe you had planned a trip to the mainland, your flight got canceled for whatever reason, and you're still waiting to rebook it until things calm down in the world. Or maybe you studied hard for that test about graphs, and then you went to school only to find out it was actually a test about vectors. You were sure that promotion was just around the corner, but you're still in that same chair. Did you think that maybe by now you'd have met Mrs. Wright? Or maybe you have met Mrs. Wright, and she found Mr. Wright, and you've been married for a while, and you expected that you would be expecting already. But instead, you're scheduling an appointment for a fertility clinic. Did you ever imagine, imagine in a million years, that you would be a divorcee splitting custody for your children? Never imagined. Was retirement supposed to be filled with health and adventure, but instead your spouse received that unexpected diagnosis? I'm still young, I'm 37, but I am getting some grace, and I think it's because I'm realizing that this world rarely turns out how it's supposed to. And when that happens, when life doesn't go according to plan, how often do you and I, as humans, substitute the word life with God? And we say something like, God is not going how he is supposed to go. He is not being who he is supposed to be. Uh, some of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer. He's a famous theologian from our denomination, and he is uh, famously quoted at saying, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
And the first time I realized how true the statement was, was when I heard and realized and understood how my friend thinks about God. My friend grew up as a Christian. He went to youth group, mission trips. He had the WWJD bracelet, the no fear shirts, if you remember those. He was a really good Christian. Grandpa got sick. But my friend, he knows God, and, and God's the God who listens to our prayers. So he started praying, and God is, is the great physician. And so he asked God to heal his grandpa. Grandpa died. And my friend walked out the doors of the church. And as far as I know, he has not walked in since. Please pray for my friend. But I realized that what my friend thinks about when he thinks about God is that God is a genie in a bottle here to grant his wishes. And when he didn't grant his wish, what is wrong with God? Is he not good? Is he not powerful? Why isn't who, he ex- who I expected him to be? I have another friend, uh, grew up Christian, same thing, got married and started tithing. 10% of their gross income at that. And they did that for years and years and years and, and they were well off and and when the pandemic came, they looked back and they realized that they had given to God over $100,000 over the last decade to the Lord. Pandemic hit. Finances got tight. They could no longer pay all their bills. They got behind on their mortgage, uh, maybe food stamps. And they were wondering, I gave God all this money. Where is he now? Not who they expected God to be. But their question is valid. How can God be good when your good grandpa loses the battle to a bad disease? How can God be faithful when your Christian friend or spouse is unfaithful? How can God be your defender when your boss, your teacher, your coworker is actively trying to destroy your life and they're succeeding? And then what do you do when God doesn't do what he's supposed to do? And why do you expect him to do that in the first place? Our guiding question today in the first blank on your outline is, who do you expect Jesus to be? Uh, Outlines are at the doors. uh, They're online. There's a, a button on our website. Who do you expect Jesus to be? We're starting a new series today, as Pastor Perry mentioned. We'll be doing it the first Sunday of the month at communion. And I'm tentatively giving it the title, Feasting with Jesus. I'm open to suggestions to make it sound a little more fun and exciting, but feasting with Jesus is the main idea of the sermon. And we see in Scripture all sorts of meals. Our our story, our story starts out with God preparing a banquet table for you and I in the Garden of Eden, and he placed us right in the middle, ready to feast on all the good food that God has provided for us. But we reject the meal with God, and we go and we have a snack with Satan, and we are plunged into wreck and ruin for our existence. But then we are redeemed, and God redeems our, our story and our relationship with him through another meal. The Passover meal that the Jews celebrated, now we celebrate in Christ with Jesus' body and his blood being the bread and the wine of that meal. And then we are launched into eternity with the marriage feast of the Lamb. Meals are important in Scripture. And it is my hope that as we look at these meals with Jesus in Scripture, that you and I would get a right thought, a right expectation of who God is, so that when life and when God doesn't go how you expect Him to go, that you would be blessed and be kept from stumbling over Jesus, as Byron so greatly read for us today. So with that, let's begin 
our first meal. I knew I'd end up here. That Herod, he's not one to be crossed. And boy, I crossed Herod something fierce. I was out in the desert baptizing people, and then Herod came out to see me. And when I saw him, I looked straight at him, and I said, it is not lawful for you to have Herodias. She's your brother's wife. Herod left. A few hours later, the crowds left. After that, soldiers came. They took me. They drug me away to this, to this dungeon, this jail. But I expected that. I knew it would happen. I can handle Herod's injustice. And to be honest, compared to the searing scorch of the sun and the fierce and deadly winds and the furnace of that blazing heat against the canyon walls, this place isn't really that bad. The coyotes leave me alone <laughs> at night here. And my disciples, they're bringing me more honey and locusts than I know what to do with. I am well acquainted with suffering. I can endure the hardships of this dungeon. But one thing that I can't handle is Jesus isn't acting like Jesus. I knew it was my job. It was mine to announce the expected one. And the priest came and they asked me, are you the Christ? Are you the Elijah? I quoted Isaiah's prophecy about myself. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That was me, the only prophet to be prophesied about besides the coming Messiah. And it was my job to announce him. I had an important job to do, and I didn't want to get it wrong. But I was sure that Jesus was the expected one. I mean, I was in my mother's womb when Aunt Mary walked into the room with Jesus in her womb, and I leapt, filling my mother with the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus came out to be baptized by me in front of everybody, I announced him and I said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to confirm what I knew to be true, after I baptized him, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. What greater proof did I need than that? I was sure he was the expected one that our people had been expecting since the time of Moses in the wilderness. When God said, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But since I announced Jesus' is coming, since I announced that he was the expected one, I don't know, his actions don't make sense to me. How can the Messiah do as Jesus is doing? And it's in that moment that John Baptist is in prison that he sends two of his disciples to go see Jesus with a question. And that's where we're picking up our story today. It's in Luke chapter 7. There's a couple accounts of this. This is in Luke chapter 7, the one we're looking at today. And John the Baptist, through his disciples, asked Jesus this. Verse 19, are you the expected one or are we to look for another. He asked this question, and, and scholars have wondered, why does John the Baptist ask this question? And, and scholars have speculated a few answers. One possibility why 
why John wanted to ask this question is some people believe that the, the hardships that John was facing, the new lot in life that John had now being in jail, either by the injustice of Herod or the suffering he's going through, possibly made him doubt who Jesus was because of his own hardship. But as I proposed in my soliloquy just a little bit ago, that to me possibility doesn't seem that likely. He had to know that if he would have speak venomous words against a snake like Herod, he would get thrown in jail. They don't have the freedom of speech promised to them in that country. He was experienced in enduring suffering. He lived in one of the harshest deserts in the world. And I'm sure that the dungeon was a challenge, but it was nothing new for him. Other people propose that John asked this question for the sake of his own disciples so that they would truly follow Jesus and not John. But we already have the testimony, if you remember in John chapter 1, that two of his disciples, John's disciples, left Jesus already and followed, they left John and followed Jesus. And so we already see that John has made a way for his disciples to follow him. So while those could be John's motives, I'd like to suggest another motive is that Jesus wasn't acting how John thought Jesus was supposed to act. John had different expectations for how the expected one would behave. And so what did John expect from Jesus? Well, we know that the Jews, they had scriptures. It's our Old Testament. And in their scriptures, they had two types of expectations of this coming Messiah. They knew him, one, as a warrior king, and the scriptures told him he was also a suffering servant. And so John, knowing this, he thinks about the the Messianic Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, and he's thinking about the coming one. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, thinking of the coming one as the warrior king, has this to say. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The Jews thought that the expected one would be a warrior king, and he would kick out the occupying wicked Roman government that was occupying their land. And the Jews thought this so much about the expected one. And they put this expectation on Jesus in John chapter 6 when he feeds the 5,000 men and women and children. Besides that, after he does that, the Jews come and try to forcibly take him as king. Let's look at that story real quick. John chapter 6, verse 15. He just fed 5,000 people, and this is what happens. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Now remember, Jesus is the king of kings. And they're wanting to make him their king. But this is what Jesus does. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself, alone. Jesus is saying, no, I am not the king that you expect me to be. I'm a different kind of king. Their expectations were wrong. And if you know the rest of that story, the same crowd, those 5,000 men and their women and children, hear the most unexpected thing from Jesus when Jesus says, hey, if you want to be a part of me, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all those people walk away from Jesus. 
So the Jews thought Jesus would be a warrior king. He clearly was acting in a way that they didn't fit their expectations. They also thought that Jesus, or that the expected one would be the suffering servant. One of their prophecies in their scripture comes from the book of Isaiah. Let's look at that one. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. This is talking about the coming Messiah. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And Jesus presents himself as a suffering servant to his closest followers, the apostles. And Peter, one of his closest followers, when Jesus presents himself as a suffering servant, Peter says, no. That expectation is not right. And that happens in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. It says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming as a, as a suffering servant. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter's expectation of Jesus did not live up with who Jesus was. And so I want to ask you, does Jesus meet your expectation? If he does, then that is not really Jesus. Because Jesus is much higher than your expectations, which is our first truth of today. Jesus will not meet your expectations. Jesus will not meet your expectations. And that's a good thing. Let's go back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist wanted to know who Jesus was, whether if it was for himself or he was having doubts or Jesus was acting in a way contrary to his expectations, or maybe for his disciples, we don't know his motive. We know his question. His question was, Luke chapter 7, verse 19, are you the expected one, or are we to look for another? Well, let's see what kind of answer Jesus gives John. Luke chapter 7, verses 20 and 23, and you can go ahead and turn there. These are good verses to have underlined or highlighted if you do that sort of thing. Luke chapter 7, verse 20 through 23 says, when the men, that's John's disciples, came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. First thing Jesus does in answering a question, is he does an action of healing. He heals. But then he did answer with his words as well. And he said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus tells John that he's healing people. He's preaching the gospel. Things that John would have expected the expected one to do. These are prophesied about in the, in the, the, the scroll of Isaiah. These would have met John's expectations. These were not an issue of offense or for stumbling. So why did Jesus say, blessed is he who keeps 
from stumbling after me. Well, maybe it wasn't what Jesus was doing. He was doing the actions of the expected one. I think it was how he was doing it. His methodology at best was unexpected, as seen in the text, and at worst was offensive and a stumbling block, as we will soon see in the next passage. Jesus describes his methodology and, and its offense just a little bit down in, in verse 33. Luke chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus talked to the crowds about who John the Baptist was, and then he comments on some of the differences between himself and John. He says this, Luke chapter 7, verse 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come either neither drinking bread nor drinking wine. Remember, John was fulfilling a Nazarite vow. He was living an austere life as a prophet. Lots of fasting, lots of hardship. And you say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was not living as John the Baptist was. He was not living a life of fasting. He was eating and drinking so much that people thought of him as a drunk and as a binge eater. And so John was wondering, are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? And if we look closely at the text, John doesn't give, Jesus doesn't give John a very nice answer. He he shares with them, yes, I am, through fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. But if we look closer at the text, we see something that Jesus doesn't say to John. Remember, John is a prisoner. And Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah in response to John's question. But he leaves out a part of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, Jesus has already quoted Isaiah's prophecy about himself in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. He's announcing his ministry's beginning. He's at a synagogue uh, in Galilee proclaiming this prophecy that you read in this scroll of Isaiah. It's about me. And this is what that prophecy says. And this prophecy, John probably had memorized because it was about the expected one. But let's see which parts of this prophecy Jesus leaves out in his response to John. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He said that to John. Boom, that's me. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Yes, he said that to John. Recovery of sight. To set free those who are oppressed. But did you notice that when Jesus quotes the same prophecy to John, he leaves out two of those phrases. Release of the captives to set free those who are oppressed. John's a prisoner. And the Messiah would not be doing those messianic actions in John's life. And John would stay in prison until he was beheaded. Jesus is the God of the unexpected. And that's your second truth today. Jesus is the God of the unexpected. And so I want to ask you again, who do you expect Jesus to be? And how do you expect Jesus to act? In what ways is it right for God to answer your prayers? What if your spouse never comes back and says sorry? What if you and your friend are never reconciled? What if your child doesn't get healed from that disease? 
What if you never conceive a child? Scripture reveals story after story about men and women who come to Jesus with their own expectations, with their own constructs of who God is. And it's like we put God in a box, and then we get to know this God really well. And we like this God because we made him. And he's really great. And I understand that God is healer. So he will heal my grandpa. And yeah, God is deliverer. So he will deliver me from my contentious neighbor. And yep, God is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He will give me a house in Kailua and a mainland trip to, or a vacation to the mainland every year and a car with a working air conditioner. Thank you, God. I like this God of my box. But blessed are you who keep from stumbling over the real Jesus. Because do you know what God does with the little tiny boxes that we put him in? And now comes the part that Brave has been waiting for. So Brave, I really hope you're watching right now. Okay, so this is 45-pound weight. This is the box that we put God in. And my wife told me if I break the stage, I will probably get fired. <laughs> Pastor Perry told me I probably won't get fired, but so wish me luck. Your box that, that you put God in. Okay, we're good. <laughs> uh, don't put God in a box. You'll be crushed in more ways than one. To end our time this morning, we're going to look at the very next story that comes up in our passage. Right after Jesus says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, in the Gospel of Luke, he actually is invited to a meal where he eats and drinks with Simon the Pharisee. It's a well-known story to many of us. There's a, a, a sinful woman, comes and anoints his feet with oil. We all know the story. And we're going to look at the story in a similar way as any chosen, the chosen, you guys seen the chosen show, where it takes take scripture, the gospels, and it dramatizes it. We know the actual events here, but it kind of just fills in some of the pukas with cultural and historical context. So we're going to do the same thing as that uh, with our next story. I do hope you read the actual account of it, maybe over lunch today, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. You'll be blessed if you do. But we're going to see what God does in, real, in a real story when we put him in a box. So we're going to do that through this story. She had been a widow for years. Her daughter had seizures since her first birthday. The young girl's epilepsy was so bad that when she was afraid for her child's life, when she went out and the daughter was sleeping alone so she could work the streets to pay for their many medical bills, she didn't know if her daughter would be okay. But this night was different. She still had to leave her daughter to go make money. But earlier in that day, a kind man, a man who spoke with authority, laid his hands on her daughter and proclaimed healing on her. And the crazy thing is that her daughter hadn't had an episode all day. After looking for her usual nighttime clients with no success, she heard a party going on down the road at Simon the Pharisee's house. Nothing new, and it was actually providential for her because it was a slow night for business. And she knew that place pretty well. She had been hired as the after-dinner entertainment for his symposium-style dinners many times before. And as she waited in front of his house, hoping to be hired, she looked through the windows, and she saw him. 
She saw him. The man who had healed her daughter was reclining next to Simon. And all of a sudden, she didn't care that she wasn't hired yet. She didn't care that the entertainment hour had not yet started at this dinner. She didn't care because she saw him. And so she burst through the doors and stood above him. She was weeping and tears flowing down her cheeks, and they landed on his feet. She didn't know what to do, so she knelt down. She, she wiped off the tears. She wiped his dirty, wetted feet, making them clean and dry. And then she pulled out her earthly savings, a vial of costly perfume hanging from a necklace. She opened it, pouring it also on his feet. And then she waited. And she wondered. And she got worried, afraid even. She had imposed herself on this man. And he didn't acknowledge her at all. He didn't even look at her. Instead, he spoke to Simon the Pharisee, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then, for the first time, he stopped talking to Simon. He looked her in the eyes, and he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. She heard murmuring by the others around the table, and all of a sudden, she made sense of what they were saying to themselves. Who is this man who even forgives sins? And as she looked around at everyone who was murmuring, they were staring at her, he gently pulled her chin to face his. He looked her in the eyes, and he spoke quietly to her, saying, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we don't know if all those facts of the story are true. Did her daughter have epilepsy? Did she even have a daughter? We don't know. But what we do know about this actual historical dinner is there are five characters in the story. From our passage today, we have John the Baptist and the others reclining at the table, wondering, who is this man who eats and drinks, who forgives sins? They are known as the seekers. And then we have Simon the Pharisee. He was the self-righteous one. And of course, we have the woman. She was a sinner. And Jesus did not act like Jesus to any of them. And only one walked away that day with the peace of Christ. And so if you want to know if that was actually how the story went, you'll have to ask the sinful woman yourself because you are the fifth character in the story. Will you be blessed and be kept from stumbling over Jesus? Jesus is not a God of your box. He's not bound to act in the ways that you think he should act. 
He doesn't have to answer your prayers the way that you think he should answer your prayers. And thank you, God, for being bigger than our expectations. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and he has invited you to join him at his table. So will you feast with Jesus? And would you pray with me? And before we pray, if, if you're here and you've never experienced the peace of Christ in your life, if you've never experienced your sins forgiven, would you cry out to him in your heart saying, Jesus, would you grant me your peace and forgive me for the many ways I've wronged you? Thank you for dying on the cross and for eternal life. And Jesus, the rest of us ask that we would come to have a right understanding of who you are as we look at your word. May we spend time with you daily in your word. And Jesus, may we have a right expectation of who you are. And may you continue to blow out our expectations day after day as we get to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.